Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared, one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. Wana Udebang is a Nigeria-based freelance journalist, poet, and documentary filmmaker who works at the intersection of women's rights, social justice, climate change, culture, and the arts. She has worked with BBC Radio 4, BBC World Service, Inspiration FM, The Guardian, and many other media outlets. In 2016, Juana was longlisted for the One World Media Award in the Women's Rights in Africa Award category. She has received the International Reporting Project Fellowship, IWMF Great Lakes Reporting Fellowship, and the Gabriel Garcia Marquez Fellowship in Cultural Journalism. Juana's work as a poet has been featured at the British Library's Word, Symbol, and Song Exhibition. Her poetry albums, Dirty Laundry and In Memory of Forgetting explore trauma, womanhood, love, and self-renewal. Udabang's documentary works include Sensitive Skin, Nylon, a short documentary on grief, and the video series Warriors, exploring the lives of people with sickle cell disease. She is the creator of the interview series Culture Diaries, which features conversations with prominent players in the African art and culture scene. Juana loves food, travel, dancing, and people. It is a pleasure to welcome Juana to BCD's People Are Culture podcast. Juana, I am so delighted to uh, welcome you to Best Cultural Destinations podcast that looks at what is culture and why does it matter. And I'm delighted to be speaking with you. And I would love to begin by asking you, what is your definition for culture? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm very, very excited um, to be with you today, all the way from Nigeria. Um, I think, I mean, culture is something that I've always, I've been constantly thinking about it as well. So I don't think, even when I, even when I come up with something, I don't know that this is going to be exhaustive, but I would say it is, for me, it is about history, it's about rituals, and it's about memory as well. Uh, and it's about how people share those things. Um, and how people interact with those things and how people evolve with those things in That's some way, great. shape, or form. I, that definition resonates with me, definitely. Um, and mm-hmm. so going on from there, why do you think culture matters? Why does culture matter? I think because, because it is history, memory, rituals are, are part and parcel of our life. How we do things, the kind of food we eat, how we connect, um, the stories we share, the stories we, we leave behind, um, and um, our art, our literature. I think every, it just encompasses every dimension of our lives. And I think as long as we're human and we matter, then our cultures matter, essentially. Right. Well said. Now, looking more um, closely at... Um, your culture, um, and part of the yeah. series is also intended to not just look at culture broadly, but also to look at mm. different cultures around the world. 
And um, Nigeria is often referred to as the giant of Africa, owing to its large population yeah. and economy. And with 186 million inhabitants, Nigeria is the most populous country in Africa and the seventh most populous country in the world. It also has the third largest youth population in the world after India and China, uh, with more than 90 million of its population under the age of 18. Um, The country also is viewed as a multinational state, as it is inhabited by over 500 ethnic groups. So that is, um, you know, quite a, uh, encompasses quite a lot. And I'm wondering if you could say um, how these factors shape and define Nigerian culture. Um, I think, you know, just the fact, I think just looking at the sort of the ethnic diversity, um, I think that definitely shows you um, also why Nigerians are quite popular around the world, because in many ways we're constantly, we're constantly in a space of like diversity and difference and finding ourselves and interacting with ourselves and um, so I think that that makes us very, very dynamic people, so to speak, I, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of level of like diversity that we're immersed in. Because it's, it's a very immersive um, situation. And I think even when people come to Nigeria, where they, it, it, it just literally just feel like that, a very immersive space, especially like if you come to like a place like Lagos, uh, it feels like a very, like you're really thrown into somewhere, you know, in terms of whether it's, it's the way everybody is different and the same, and the way everything is um, complicated um, and intense, you know, simultaneously. Um, I think that's what I would definitely say. But I think we're, there's something about our diversity that, that enriches us quite a lot as, as a people and also as individuals. Um, and how that attaches itself to sort of our adaptability and where whenever we, because there's always this thing that like you always say, like, there's this thing that people say that of every, like, you know, four black people that are in the world, one of them is Nigerian. Like, you always find a Nigerian everywhere. And somehow we always move and we always adapt. And I think that sense of sort of diversity, um, you know, and just being, just being raised in a space where everybody's not the same um, definitely has an effect on, on who it is you are and how you move to the world, I think. Very cool. And can you kind of encapsulate or, or provide a description for someone that might be visiting Nigeria, how they might experience that diversity just, you know, in terms of mm-hmm. walking down the street? Um, you know, is there a way to conjure up some imagery for people of how that diversity manifests on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think... Um so as as you just say, you know Nigeria has at least like 500 different ethnic groups. But however, we out of those 500, we have three major ethnic groups, um, which means also means every city is kind of different. Um, you know, essentially whether it's just their cultural customs and their values. Nigeria is always very very when you come to say you come to Lagos, when you come to Lagos, it's a very very rich. So language is your constituent of language. You know, wherever as you move. You're hearing different languages, you're hearing different, different accents as well. You're hearing different dialects of English. <laughs> you're hearing different dialects, you know. So, so it's a cacophony of, of, of sound. Mm. So I think it makes us, like, I always say, like, um, Lagos, Lagos is, like, it's an assault on your senses because language is, like, in multiplicity. So you're seeing that um, even in people's sort of behavior as well. Because different cultures, different Nigerian cultures have different things that they value. 
Some people are really about this sort of like quietness. Some people are very, uh, some people have a thing with certain cultures that are very loud and very brash. Um, and I think you see that in every single character where everybody's just different and stands out in some way. I think that's... Mm. And um, yeah, you know are, I mean? are there other manifestations um, that would be clear to a visitor as far as the um, the diversity? Um, I mean, I think I think you 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 really you really start diversity when you move to different states, different cities, right? So if you move to certain parts of the north where it's like more Muslim and some parts more conservative, and so people are a little bit more covered up. You go to certain parts of the east; it's just a little bit different as well. The West is a little bit different. So I think it, it, it's not really something that, you know, you can necessarily just, like, break down into, into um, categories. It's like as you move through cities, you see that food, I think, is another thing that makes you understand, like, how diverse we are. So everyone kind of eats different things mm-hmm. because, of, <laughs> because of that. So, I, I mean, beyond, like, things like jollof rice, which is, like, common to everybody, but every culture has their own, like, food that is, like, native to their customs that, you know, that they eat or that are popular um, as well. That's another thing. Like, the food culture is extremely, extremely rich. So what a Yoruba person eats, what you see in someone eating in their friend's house is not what they eat in their house. Mm-hmm. You know? And what would be a couple so of that's, dishes? That's always... Okay, so a couple of dishes. So, for instance, Yoruba people, um, Yoruba culture, um, seafood, like... Um, there's a food. There's a, a food called amala. So amala is basically a yam, and it's the skin of the yam which has been dried and then ground into a powder. And so that's now like it's it's um, you cook it with hot water, it becomes like a mold. So think of like grits in a way, and then you have it with like a vegetable sauce. And so that's something that um, a lot of Yoruba people eat. Um, people in the north they have like peanut stew. Um, people in the west have, like, cassava dishes. They have a um, melon seed stew as well. So, like, a lot, of, a lot of the stews differ in different places. Sometimes, even between certain, maybe within a, a certain state, right, um, you might just have two ethnicities that are a little bit different. So they actually cook the same meal but in different ways. So some people might, so, for instance, um, there is a, a, soup, a stew called um, pandas stew. Now, banga shoe is basically palm nut shoe. So it's when you get the palm nut from the tree, and then you, you kind of you boil it, you sort of pound it, pour it in hot water, and so you extract the palm juice, the palm nut juice. So that palm nut juice becomes, it's cooked, and you put meat, and you put chicken, and fish, and whatever in it, and it becomes like a nice, like, thick shoe that you can have with, like, rice or different sort of things. Now, in my own, um, in, in my own culture, which is Ibibio, we put a leaf into that stew. So we call that stew atama. But for people from the Niger Delta, it is banga stew. But it's the same thing, but we put a leaf in, they don't put a leaf in it. So, so it's, that's an example. It's like each area imprints their own style on... Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. Kind of the way, like, in, in the U.S., you have, like, Cajun-style barbecue. You have, you know... Um, North Carolina-style barbecue, yeah, stuff like that. Exactly. And isn't that interesting yeah. so how the, that's, that's kind of a human um, tendency, um, you know, that there are these mm. staple dishes that people enjoy, but they each Absolutely. have to have their yeah. own local flair. Um, mm-hmm. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Now, one thing I, I want to... I'm sorry, go ahead. We get competitive as well. It actually does get competitive because you'd have someone say, we don't cook it like that, we don't cook it like that, this is how we cook it. And everyone thinks their way of cooking it is the best way to cook it. So it's, it's always a very sort of interesting way of competing, but also learning about each other, you know? Right, exactly. Yes, everybody does mm-hmm. always think their way is best. <laughs> Um, Absolutely. Now, before we move on to talk about your own career, I did also want to just delve into the fact that Nigeria has such a huge youth population. And I'm curious about how that shapes the culture and the vibe. And um, do you have Mm. any, can you give me an overview of of that? Right now, the the youth population is definitely shaping many areas, mostly entertainment and technology as well. So um, back in the day, like Nigerians are very traditional people in terms of career options. So you'd have, we always, I think there's a comedian who makes this joke. She's a British Nigerian comedian. And she makes this joke saying, you know, if you're a Nigerian, you have um, a couple of career options. Either you're a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, um, an accountant, or the family is great, right? <laughs> so, but, you know, uh, the fact that you have so many young people um, also means that there is a youth bulge, which means we can't, you can't, you can't just stick to those traditional occupations because there's no room. There's not very many spaces for that anymore. So young people are creating different kinds of, of careers for themselves, you know, especially with technology. And so people are just doing really much, much more interesting things. From people running websites and blogs to, um, you know, um, sort of app-related businesses, um, to people who, so young, and then of course, that's the whole idea. The internet caused the globalization as well. So culture is becoming much more homogenous in certain ways. So as much as we're individual, becoming much more universal because the world is opening up. So we're all checking out the same thing. We're all watching the Kardashians and the, you know, we're all watching all, everyone's like affected by different things. You know, people in, in America are listening to Afrobeats from Nigeria. Um, you know, so if, if, if things are not traveling just one way as it used to, where we're just waiting for stuff to come on television, but everything is kind of intersecting. And I think that as a result, like there's a very sort of like shift in culture, which is becoming more globalized, um, which also means that there's opportunities for many more things as well. So I think they're definitely shaping the culture and entertainment space, whether it's film, whether it's um, game technology, whether it's especially music, I would say, you know, theater and those sorts of things. And then... Um, also, um, you know, shaping, like, you know, just with the use of technology mm-hmm. and how people are either earning a living, making money using their computers to run businesses online or Instagram businesses, people becoming influencers. Like, there's just a whole, like, different, like, things are just working completely differently now. So, yeah. And do you think that as a result of the traditional career path um, being so competitive and, you know, plainly not an option for everyone, do you think that's mm-hmm. made young people more creative and more inclined to go absolutely. into creative fields? Absolutely. I think, I think they're definitely, um, that's definitely making them more, more creative. But I think even just the fact that, as I said, just because of the fact that the Internet opens up space to possibility and so much more, it's also giving, opening up, young, younger people have uh, sort of uh, more of an appetite for risk, right? Ah, interesting. So because they seem to work in different places. You know, so there's more. So Africans are even being more, even more connected now. So before, where we were all, we were not just like cut away from other other continents, you know, but we're all like, you know, cut away from each other. 
as well. So there is even like an intercontinental connection that's going on. So, you know, people are, are running business, are, are partnering people in South Africa or in Ghana or in Senegal. You know, so even Africa itself is opening up to each other. That's cool. And I think, um, yeah, so I think that's definitely um, doing something um, mm-hmm. for young people as well. I'm very sure it's a sense of possibility. So even if they're not finding people in their space who are doing the things they would like to do, they're seeing people in other spaces like their own doing things they would like to do. Right. That's great. You know? And yeah. that's, that's actually a nice segue into yeah. my, my first question about your own career. Um Uh, which you identify as a journalist, a poet, and a filmmaker. And um, I'm curious about whether there was a pivotal experience that drew you to these roles. Um, So um, I think with journalism, the experience is very much childhood-based. So what happened was my parents were getting a divorce. And... um, it was my parents were in very bad. My my mother was in a very violent marriage with my father, and I've seen. Oh, I just I think I, as a kid I just always had this very strong sense of justice. Um, anyway, and just seeing certain things that happen to women around me, and I had this idea that I was going to be a lawyer, and um, I I think I was like I was going to be a lawyer, and you know I was going to fight for people who were being oppressed and all of these sort of things. And so my own family started having these problems, and it was like it, it even cemented that a bit more for me. And then I think I went to a courtroom about two or three times during their sort of settlement case where they were trying to fight for a house, for the house we lived in. And I just noticed that the legal system just wasn't fantastic <laughs> or fair. Mm. I thought I, I was concerned because I was a child anyway. And so I felt at that moment, I felt very defeated and I felt like, I think I was about, 30, I was about 14. And I just felt like, you know, I couldn't achieve this dream of, you know, seeking justice or achieving justice or fairness via being a lawyer. So I figured, you know, if I write about things that I thought were unfair, then it would bring things to a bigger to um to bigger eyes and bigger attention. So that's why I said I'm trying to literally that was that was my motivation. Um, and then the poetry, um, of course because I was going to a dark time as a child, like witnessing all these sort of things. I found myself literally just writing stuff on paper. I didn't even know that I was writing poetry at the time. Um, but for me, it was just a way to articulate what I was feeling and a sort of catharsis as well. And I remember, I think, about when I turned... I started writing about, like, 16. When I turned... Yeah, I think when I turned about 17 or so, I think my best friend read, like, scraps of paper I'd written, scribbled little words on. And she was like, oh, this is, like, so poetic. And I was like, oh, really? Like, yeah, dude, like, this is really poetic. I was like, oh, okay, then, you know. And then I think my 17th birthday, she got me a journal. And mm-hmm. so I literally started writing more and more in there. And, um, you know, and then I'd be reading, reading out to my friends and I living in an apartment, which we shared when we were living in England. And then um, I think from there, literally, I just started, like, getting more interested in poetry and learning about poetry. And that's how that kind of them there and I started performing and you know that just kept growing. Um I think in terms of filmmaking, so I but I lived in I left left Nigeria when I was about sixteen, moved to England, I was there till I was about twenty five. When I moved back to Nigeria, um there was just a like an art, artistic renaissance going on. And I felt like I had I literally moved back to Nigeria in the middle of this burgeoning art scene. So literature was really hard. Um, you know, young people were trying to make you animation filmmaking again it was i just came in and the time where people were trying to fix, find themselves outside of these like mandated traditional careers so i would be performing we had this um you know like a restaurant where and bar where we 
perform poetry once a week. And people like, you know, who are bankers and lawyers would come in there, roll up their sleeves and they'll be singing. They like have these amazing voices. So everyone like just like let out their creative side in that space. So that whole scene was kind of really growing. And so again, with like, you know, filmmaking as well was part of, was part of that. Um, Nollywood has been established for a while, but then there are young couples, you know, people who are like, oh, I want to make different kinds of films that doesn't have to do with this, this um, Nollywood aesthetic necessarily. And so I think I was also friends with people like that. And I was like, okay, I want to try this out as well. So I think it's just being immersed in, in this space of like the beginnings of like a creative renaissance. Um, I think that's how like things like my poetry and um, my filmmaking um, career sort of like developed from there. Mm. And you said something that I, that I, I want to pick up on that I think is important. Um, your friend encouraged you. She saw something in you that yes. you didn't see in yourself. Yeah. And would you say Absolutely. what would you what would you say about the importance, you know, in terms of developing an artistic side of that person, you know, that gives you encouragement or that that picks up on something that you maybe aren't taking too seriously yourself and that needs to be yeah. nurtured. Gosh, I think that is so vital because I keep saying to everyone, like, my friend, like, my best friend bought me that journal, but then her sister, we, we all kind of lived together at different points with her sisters, and we had other friends as well. And they literally, I used to say that they were, like, my, my hype men. And they literally gassed me up, making me feel like my poems were, like, amazing. When I read those poems now, I think they were really terrible. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they were just, like, they just thought, like you, yo, wow, this is so deep, man. This is so deep. Like this is so awesome, you know. And literally, they make friends. Or I keep saying them like, I don't even know. Like it was like they deluded me to like delude myself, and I became good, you know. Yeah, that's so, cool. So like even, yeah, it was so weird. Like even um, even with my radio, my like my broadcasting and my journalism career as well, we would do this. I used to like I would I bought like a microphone, connected it to my laptop. And they would indulge me in, like, all these podcasts. I would be doing, like, our own fabricated radio shows in my bedroom. You know, I was like, you, at the university, of course, I didn't, I, I didn't work on radio at the time. But, like, you know, we were just going to do our own show. And we'll plug in a microphone into the computer. And we'll be we'll talk about, like, whatever we want to talk about. I created, like, this small, small radio show. And <laughs> in fact, I remember we had this thing where we called our radio station Creed Snare FM after the street. And um, we lived on in Cardiff at some point. So we, <laughs> we make a whole radio idea, you know. But it was just the fact that you have people that not just believe in you, but they actually indulge you um, in such a way that, and, and I, don't, I don't think they saw the were indulged me. They just thought that, you know, my friend is really talented and, you know, we really want to be a part of these things you're doing. Uh, but I think for me, I, I, I really think that to everyone, that even when people are, are in a place where, work, where it feels like they're not, they're doing rubbish, you know, it's so important that you just make them feel a sense of, of you know, that they have something. Like, the fact that they're interested in that in itself is such a big deal. And I think once we show encouragement, it makes them want to go learn more and want to get better. You know, I think it's so vital that we encourage um, however little or weird um, someone's creativity is, even if they can't even sing. But the fact that they like to scream all over the whole place, I think it's something. I think at some point they're going to have to learn, learn to, to think. <laughs> right. You know? Well, I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's just the idea of um, encouraging people to express themselves. 
which is the medication as well. Because I think, because my friends always thought I was dope, um, I don't think, I, I was never scared of being rejected by anyone. Because That's I cute. thought that these people are amazing. They love me. So if you guys don't get it, that's fine. My friends get it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And and I think, you know, one of the lessons that I've found is if you aren't getting that kind of support, yeah. um, maybe you need some new friends. Um, Absolutely. I think so. I think it's so important to have to have a community. You right. know, um, I, think, I think about every aspect of my work. And it's really been very community-centric. It's people that are like, oh, when, you know, they see you and they say, oh, what are you working on? When are you doing this? Oh, we want to be a part of this thing you're doing. And, you know, it's just so one, it's wonderful because that's just those little acts of faith is built so much in a person, you know? Um, and even when the moment where you think that, you know, you don't have, you, you have like, you're crippled by self-doubt. I think just knowing that there are people there that like have been championing you um, almost feels like, you know what, like I feel responsible to these people to actually express myself because they are dependent on, on how I, on, you know, on the work that I produce. You know, so I think I think it's so vital. Right. And um, you define your work as being at the intersection of women's rights, social justice, personal narratives, culture, and the arts. Can we break each of these yeah. down? I'd love to get the backstory <laughs> on why each of these realms are of interest to you. So could you share an illustration of, to start with, why you were drawn uh, to women's rights? I mean, obviously you referred to... Um, mm you know, a home situation that no doubt had an influence on this. Yeah. But can you, can you speak about your, um, your interest in women's rights and, and how you um, approach that professionally? Mm. So I think, I think literally, as, I, as, I, as you did mention, and as, as I said earlier, like uh, my journalism career was pretty much spurred on by like my own sort of family situation. Um, and I think that even made me more aware of sort of like, this like oppressive status of women in our community as Nigerians and as Africans, and then as a broader context in the rest of the world as well. So I think for me, it was it it, it wasn't something I, I had to think about or I thought about. I always just found that my work is I, I don't I don't really do anything out of out of I don't want to say obligation, but I've always like I'm drawn to what I'm drawn to, and I'm just drawn to stories about women. Whether it's because I'm a woman, whether it's because I've experienced a lot of things, or I've seen some of these things happening around me, but I'm like, for me, it's like I feel a certain um, obligation. Like my voice has to speak for for those people, um, and I think sort of women are at the core of it, and I, I and it continues to be that way. And and those are those seem to be the stories that continue to shape me in some way. Um, so it's something that I don't know that I had. It was very deliberate. It just happened. Um, and it's where my interest lies. And unfortunately, it's not exhaustive. <laughs> so right. um, there's always something new coming out that I need to talk about or I need to, you know, I need to report on um, in that regard. Um, in terms of, I, I would say in terms of social justice, I think that just sort of, sort of ties with women as well. And, you know, just being, always being this kid who had it, who always had a sense of, strong sense of justice and fairness. And, you know, I just couldn't see things that, things that, didn't seem fair and not, not, not say anything. I was that kid who would always want to say something, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think I'm all, always 
drawn to, you know, social justice in that way as well. And, and then women happen to just, my story, women have to help them to center in my story, um, so to speak. In terms of personal narratives, I'm very interested in, in how politics and how systems affect the individual. So some people might call it micro and macro. I don't know that anything is necessarily macro and micro. But I really think that the breakdown of systems, the injustice of systems, all the systemic issues that we are dealing with, they, are, they manifest itself on the bodies of people, on the lives of people. And so for me, their personal story is that bigger illustration of these like, systemic breakdowns or the systemic injustices that we experience. And I think, so I've always approached all my stories, whether it's as a journalist or as a filmmaker, on these people's individual stories. Like, I, like you would, it's, it's very rare for you to see me start off stories with like throwing in lots of data and stats. I always tend to start from the person, you know. There's always a person at the center of what I'm writing. Or, <clears throat> and I think um, human beings, we, we, I also want to use human beings to humanize people, to humanize situations. Because oftentimes situations can just seem like what they are, like situations. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't empathize to, to, towards them towards those things because they're just they're this big abstract thing. But then when they become human, you know, they become relatable. It's like you and me, you know. Um, I think um, for me, they're stronger entry points into talking about a bigger thing as well. So that's where like sort of the personal narrative comes in. And, um, you know, culture, because, I mean, it's life. It's a way of life, as I said. Like, you know, it's history, it's memory, it's, it's all of those things in one. Um, and I think culture kind of traverses all those things. It's, it, 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 fixes itself into, you know, women's, women's lives, into people's personal narratives, you know, and into social justice as well. A lot of the time, different aspects of culture also inform certain injustices that we experience, um, or the wonderful things that we experience as well, you know, um, or the things that we need to preserve as well. And then I think I just love art because I think art saved my life, essentially. I think, you know, um, being a teenager, being, you know, going through your parents' Sitting up, your uh, family finances, like just like going from like middle class to pretty much like broke working class, um, and and just that conflicting time of you know going from a perfect family to like I don't even know what this whole mess is, and the depression that kind of goes with that as a young person, and then just dealing with general like teenage angst and <laughs> and right. uh, you know at, at adolescence. Um, whether it's with your body and not feeling like you look like the what typical be- beautiful girls are supposed to look like, and sort of dealing with like your all your family drama and all the things that are happening to you, and how your body doesn't feel like you know it's going to be this thing that boys will like or whatever. Um, and and I think like poetry was was for me that thing um, that saved my life. And and essentially poetry I found um, also sort of traverse different areas. So it moves from just not just not just poetry, but being able to go into gallery and and feeling. And I I, I always felt a connection to artists and and creativity. And so I think like art changed my life. So I have a very very visceral connection to art that's beyond like aesthetic. Mm. You know, it. I always say it, it. Art is for me. It's like it's worship. It's. I go to the theater and I cry half the time until I watch a really good play. You know, I feel. Sh- I, go through shivers when I watch a really good film or a really great documentary. When I go into an amazing exhibition, I'm just like, you know, I feel like I, I met God, essentially. Mm. So, yeah. 
That's great. So I, I think um, that's, yeah. <laughs> Um, I identify with everything that you just said, and in particular, you know, this yeah. idea of the human story really being, mm. you know, how we connect. And you have your yeah. own interview series called The Culture Diaries, and I'd love to know yeah. what, what inspired you to begin that series, and what about the interview format appeals to you? So I think, um, so first of all, I've always been a curious person. I am that, I was that child who was always asking my mother questions, asking everyone questions. My mother's regular answer was, stop asking me stupid questions because I think she got fed up. (laughs) So every every conversation becomes an interview for me. (laughs) It's so, it's so fast. When I'm on a date, before I know it, I'm asking the guy so many questions and he's just like, is this an interview? I'm like, I'm so sorry. This is my default mode. naturally interviewing people um, because I'm curious about people I'm fascinated about people um, so I think that's just who I am that's who I am and that's embedded in my DNA in some way shape or form uh, I think so in terms of wanting to interview artists so because I'm, as I said when I moved to Nigeria I felt like I was in the middle of this sort of like creative renaissance that was happening I was working on the radio as well I used to like host a lot of I was always asked to host because I worked on the radio and clearly I was talking a lot so I was always invited to host um, certain artistic events, so like book readings, book reviews, um, art panels, and those kind of things. So I was just always in this circle of like literature festivals, art festivals. I was like the artsy girl <laughs> in Lagos. <laughs> you know, I was like that artsy chick. You would see her at every single art, art event. <laughs> what she does, why is she here? But I was that girl. Um, and I think I was, just, I was just exposed to people's work in a, such a beautiful way. And I think it was a very selfish show for me because I just thought it was like, people need to read all these guys. People need to hear about this guy. Another thing was, like, for me, I didn't, I didn't understand why art seems to always be this thing that was very exclusive, right? Mm-hmm. So I felt like I, was, I had two lives. So I had this very artistic life, but I had this other life where I worked on the radio, and this was very sort of mainstream, so I get invited to, you know, typical, like, red carpet-type shindings. So I was, just two, I was like two different people. Um, and, and I never understood why people, other people would like never know all the stuff that was happening in the city. That was just like so amazing. And so for me, I just, I just came to the point where I was like, maybe we need to know about this stuff. So the only people that ever got interviewed were like popular musicians, right? So either like popular musicians or popular personalities or popular actors or actresses. Like those are the only people who ever got like airtime. And then you have this like really incredible like artists, whether they're making visual arts or writing or doing poetry or doing performance art and like people like it's only people within this artistic community that knew them and I, I think I believe I, I think because I, I didn't become an artist because I went to some kind of like you know I did want some kind of like um you know really incredible art degree or anything I think it just happened like a, everything was a very natural reaction I didn't I wasn't like I didn't write poetry because oh I always studied Shakespeare I wrote poetry because like I was depressed and it just started, I just started writing stuff and then it became poetry. So I was just, for me, I was like a regular random person, like everybody else, who got into art. So I just thought, I think everybody should be able to experience the amazingness <laughs> that is going on in art. Uh, and so I think that was how it was born. I was like, I want the people, people in the world to see all these people. And I don't want them, I don't want it to be in a silo. And I think that also even informs how I interview them because I don't interview them using art speak which is something that happens in the art world as well. Everything is very, like, you know, artsy language. I just talk to 
them like a regular person, you know, wanting to know about their process and their work and their philosophy. Right. So, yeah, that's how yes, I, I totally get it. And I love the name of the series, and I'm curious why you refer to it as a diary. I have my own perceptions of that, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, how did it, um, so on Instagram, I would always, I, every time I'd go and watch an event or watch a play or go to an exhibition, I would always like either like tweet about it or I would take a photo and put it in my Instagram. And so I just started this hashtag of culture diaries. Like, you know, I'm just like keeping a diary of cultural things that are happening and, revolu- and you know, like mo- moments and movements and revolutions that are happening. And so I would just like put up stuff on my Instagram. And so for me, eventually I was like, okay, this is only like, I, I, I remember at first I was like, I'm going to call it Society Guys. <laughs> but it sounded so pretentious. <laughs> 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 I was like, this you know? I was like, this sounds so pretentious. And then I had a friend who was like, this is just like, Juana, this is so brain-growing stuff. Like, she's been a freak, you know? So uh, I was like, okay, what am I going to call it? And then I was like, well, I already have this hashtag I, already, I use on Instagram anyway called Culture Diaries. And, you know, I think it's just like, uh, yeah, a continuation of that. So, yeah, and that's that was how it came together. Mm-hmm. And so that's, yeah. that's kind of a nice example of <laughs> your first idea, right. which you didn't overthink, you know, really serving you well. <laughs> I know. <laughs> what was your idea behind it? What now, can you can you single out um, of all the interviews that you've done? Are there one or two that yeah. stand out as being particularly uh, powerful or enlightening experiences for you? Um. Oh gosh, there were so many, but um, I think I I really like Adelaoye's interview. Because I thought she was really honest, um, and I felt her vulnerability coming through. You know, where she she she's the actor, and Ade was talking about like you know this idea of like that balance of <clears throat> of trying to live your dream, but at the same time you have to do certain jobs, and sometimes you hate certain stories you're you're told to act in or whatever. But then she has to do that, and then talking about like the colorism in the industry. I just I felt like her interview was really just very vulnerable and very honest, so I really enjoyed that. Um, I also really liked um, there's there's a filmmaker called Abbas. I really enjoyed interviewing him because of there's a certain fearlessness that he has in terms of um, you know just like yeah the fearlessness that you know I don't fit into the mold, but I'm still going to do what I want to do. And I think I'm very drawn to the spirits of rebellious people because I think it takes a lot of courage to be rebellious, especially when you come from cultures that are very conventional, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that takes a lot, a lot of time. So, so yeah, I think for me, those two um, really kind of, like, spoke to me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are so many, so many of them spoke to me in different ways as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that each conversation I have... I almost feel like there's some personal message coming through. Like everyone seems to say something that just really strikes a chord with me. And Um, absolutely, you know, if you you watch all of them, they all said there was one thing they all kind of echoed, which was especially like the older artists who kept saying they wish they started, they wish they they were fearless enough earlier and Mm. they just did what they wanted to do. I think that always kind of spoke to me about like just you know 
really like chasing the things that you want, you know, right. and getting stuff done regardless. Yeah. So they all, everyone kind of had that regret going on in some way that like they just wish they, you know, they did it. They did the things they were doing earlier. So like, I think the, the lady who was an architect before Matt, who became a theater director, she talked about that. And Efe, who was a poet, also talked about that as well. Um, about um, just like I, when I when I asked the 10 questions at the end and I was like what would you tell your younger self and he was like just cool down just calm down and that is so vital you know because sometimes where we feel we put some kind of weird pressure on ourselves to do so much and I think again like people who are in very creative fields because they're not they're not like conventional methods of success to them um, you feel like there's all of the, all the things riding on your head you know um, and sometimes you just need to relax and just, you know, just go with where it's leading, essentially. That is pretty profound. And that segues into another question I want to ask you about. And um, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing the name of this actor, but um, one of the interviews that you did yeah. um, with um, Ade Luo, um, you and she discussed the financial realities and challenges of the creative life. Yeah, that's the, I told you, yeah, that's Ade Laoye, yeah. Ade, that's the girl I was talking about earlier, yeah. Ah, okay, yeah. I thought that might have been. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and, and she also spoke about how that one yes that you get can make up yeah. for, you know, a Absolutely. series of rejections. Absolutely. And I'd love mm-hmm. to have you talk a little bit about the value placed on creativity in Nigerian culture, um, and your mm-hmm. own experience of making a commitment to being a cultural yeah. standard bearer and, and what that has meant for your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Because at least for me, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a cost. Um, and so I'm yeah. curious about, you know, your views on um, following your passion and the practical realities yeah. that are involved in doing that sometimes. Oh, gosh, this is such an important question. So, you know, um, in Nigeria, I feel like, well, I don't even say I feel, like, culture, um, people, don't, people don't place an importance in cultural capital. And so, you know, as I did say, young people are, like, really thriving in the arts and all of these sort of things. So this is still very new, right? So this, this is still very new for a lot of people. Um, so they're making, they're becoming their own role models and making their own ways as well. So which means there's a lot, there's no, there's, there's no forebearer, there's no forerunner. You know, there's no established success story that you're going to follow through in that kind of way. Um, so it, it is a real thing. We don't have a lot of grants available to in the arts compared to like in Europe and America, where art is free, you know, it, it is seen, I mean, it is valued as a, you know, in the society. So there are institutions to protect art and to grow artists and develop artists as well. We don't have very much of that. And sometimes people's careers are killed, like artistic side of the careers are killed because of commercialism and the need to just like pay bills and live. So I think it's, it's really, it's really a very um, catch-22 situation for a lot of people. And I think one of the things is really about, unfortunately, I feel like we are in a time where as an artist, you can't afford to just, you know, be this person laying in bed and thinking like, I'm waiting for like the muse to come. You know, you really have to, like, your all has to be beyond the creative practice of it. You also have to think in terms of, you know, monetary value. And whether that is creating certain things that you're going to do 
to earn a living whilst you can, you know, create your art as well. So I'll give you an example. Even for me as a poet, you know, I write what I want to write and create work I want to create for my own performances. But I do have, you know, commissioned work where people say, I wanted to write, you know, about my NGO or my CEO is leaving the company and we're doing a like a send forth party and wanted to write this poem about this guy, which is basically like a praise song at the end of the day. You know, you're not fulfilled doing that, but you only need to earn a living. So, you know, you have to do what you're doing. The same way I work as a freelance journalist. So there are certain stories that I'm drawn to that I want to do, but I do get commissioned to do to go and chase other stories that I might not really care so much about. So I have to do them because I need to pay the bills. So I think it's really about like creating a certain sense of balance for yourself and saying, okay, there are things I need to do to earn money and, you know, and, and I, I can still do things that really personally feed my soul as well. But you, I don't think, like, especially in this country, in this time, you can't afford to be an artist and just say, I just want to just create art and that's it. I think um, that's a luxury in itself that you can't afford to have. So, and, so and, you always have to be thinking as, you know, in terms of like in terms of creativity. Even not even just that, like you have to you have to be a little bit more smarter. You have to be you have to be a marketer. You have to market yourself. You know, you have to do all this so much, you know, to that's just more than creating the art in itself. So you have to be accustomed to it. Right. And <coughs> excuse me. Um kind of to um take this line of questioning one step further, in this interview yeah. that I was referring to um, you made an interesting point about how today fame often seems to precede actual accomplishment and people are famous Absolutely. for being famous. And, you know, this mm-hmm. is certainly a phenomenon in the U.S. and it's it's not one I'm too impressed yeah. with. But I'm curious about your take on how and why this mindset got started and why it persists and its impact on authentic culture and I'd love to have you address all that in the context of Nigerian culture. Mm. So I think, you know, in terms of Nigerian culture, so for um, the people that, unfortunately, a lot of the time, the people that actually are at the helm of certain elements, aspects of, aspects of creativity, are business people, right? Right. They're not artists. So the person who is marketing a film, who's a film distributor, is a business person. The person who is, selling your paintings is a business person. <laughs> you know, it's an art dealer. The person who is, you know, the same thing, yeah. So, so the people at the, who, are, who tend to be controlling certain things are not artists. They're business people. And so they, you know, capital and, you know, money is at the forefront of that. And so they need to make money. And they understand, you know, the, the capital in popularity and the currency rather in popularity now especially, you know, how with young people on social media and how your following can translate into people attending an event or coming to watch a film or, you know, or just showing up at a gallery, whether or not they can buy stuff, but at least they show up. And the more popular you are, certain collectors want to collect your work and all of those sorts of things. So they understand the power of of that as currency. Unfortunately, it's very annoying because, you know, with, that seems to precede people's talent. But I think what it also means is that, as I said, as I said with artists, you can't afford to just sit down and wait for the news anymore. You also have to understand how these things work and how you can make it work for yourself. So as much as you might be, you know, you're someone whose aesthetic and whose um, philosophy be about doing the work, you also have to understand the power of and the currency of, of popularity. 
And, okay, so how can I use some of these things to my own advantage as an artist to, to be seen as well or to be in a position um, to continue to create my work and access the resources that I can, I can get to create my work? You know, so I think that's unfortunately what it is. Like, we can't, we just can't afford to just be by the sidelines, um, you know, because systems are, systems are shifting, trends are shifting. And it's not just Nigeria, it's everywhere. You know this in the U.S. as well. Like, you know, there are models, <laughs> you know, with, with massive following who are now actors just right. because of, you know, the matching covers they've been on, as opposed to, you know, how well they're trained, you know? Right, right. So um, we see it's, all over, it's happening all over the world, um, unfortunately. And but we can't afford to just be like old-fashioned about it and sit down and whinge and whine and say, oh, every time, but these people are so talentless and just because they have, you know, 500, half a million followers on Twitter and that's why they, they selected them to be in this film or in this thing or that thing. Like, it's like, you just have to like get with the program. But I think essentially what's important is to make sure that the work at the core of everything that you're doing. So whether or not you understand, you know, the currency of, of social media, the currency of popularity, and and the and how marketing works, as long as you are doing the work, and I think that that shows that you're staying authentic to yourself and to the things that you're creating. That's awesome. That's very insightful. Now, kind of taking again this this questioning a little bit further, um, and looking at a piece of work that you did that was. It's very potent and very powerful. Um, your documentary called Nylon, which is um, about grief. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I've had my own experience in dealing with grief, and it's really just a devastating, mm-hmm. you know, p- p- passage in our human experience. Absolutely. Can you share a little bit about your inspiration to do this piece and about the process <clears throat> and the experience of creating it? So Nylon was about um, my sister who passed away just a year before I was born. But the thing was, it seems like even from, from being a child, it felt like there was this ghost, you know, that was floating around because this person was always referred to, um, you know, in relation to me. And I felt like it was like I carried a baggage about regarding this person that I didn't even know, but I didn't really know the intricacies of what was going on. Um, and my mother would always like blurt out things randomly, you know. So when she get upset, she would say things like, "Oh, if Syimo was here, you know, this wouldn't be happening." And you know, and I, so I just kept going. I just kept wondering about this thing. But it was like people in my house never really wanted to talk about it per se. But we every now and again the name would come up. My mom would cry about something, but that would be that would be it. Um, I think eventually, of course, I was, I was growing. Ask my brothers, my sister, you know, what happened, and they, they told me. And then one day I just asked, and I just, I've been thinking a lot about how um, oftentimes our parents are not seen as human, right? Yeah. Um, they're just parents, you know? They're just characters who are supposed to take care of us and do, you know, sacrifice their life for us. But they're not human beings. So we don't think that they go through things, they go through grief, or they're upset, or they're insecure people. Like, we don't think they're human, essentially. And I think... Um, I was I've been working on the radio for about six, on the radio for about six years, and I've been doing a show where I just like listen to people's problems every day and like give them advice and stuff like that. And so it, essentially, um, one day I just thought like, you know what? I think my parents have histories of my mom has histories of her own, and it will be terrible to you know your parents are getting older, and it would be terrible to have them pass away without any of the documentation of these histories. 
um, all these experiences. So I literally asked her, I was like, if I, I, I said, mom, if I, if I wanted to interview you about, you know, SYM or my sister, would you be okay with it? And she asked, she said to me, I thought none of you ever cared about what I thought about stuff. You know, and wow. I thought that was so powerful that, yes, because she's a, a typical Nigerian woman who was, they're very secretive about things in their life and never talk about stuff. Um, my mom, my mom a person that is quite open anyway, but I didn't expect her to be open enough to want to talk in front of the camera about, about it. So, um, because people never, Nigerian people never talk about stuff. Like stuff happens, we don't talk about it. Like everyone just moves on. And so I was like, would she be willing to talk about this? It took me like a year to get the courage to ask her to be honest. And when I did, it was just very, she was like, yeah, whenever you're ready, let me know. And she was like, you know, we'll all soon die soon. And when we die, nobody's going to know any of these stories. So I was like, oh, okay. You know, and I was quite impressed with the fact that she was very willing to be very open, open about um, talking about that situation. And, and there was so much more to it that I, I couldn't even put in the video because I just thought it would take away from the main conversation um, that happened. Um, because you realize, like, you never, the person never stops grieving. And I've never, because I was always frustrated by the fact that sometimes, like, she would, she would literally jolt out of sleep <laughs> if anything happened, like, if somebody just knocked the gate. And I never knew that, you know, grief, like, continued in that kind of way. So I've been spending my time counseling other people about their own issues and their grief. I didn't know that my mother was still grieving even till this very day, um, you know. Like, for instance, one of the things is in our culture, you know, parents are not allowed to bury children. So my mother doesn't know where her child is buried. So we don't know where the burial, burial ground is. She has no idea. So there's no, there's no memory. So this thing, again, I talk about culture being memory and history. And so there's no memory of, this, of where you can even go and have closure with the person. You know, wow. she doesn't know where the person was buried. Wow. Yeah. And w- do you know what the story is behind that tradition? Is it to prevent people <laughs> from grieving <laughs> for too long? <laughs> it's just for digging because children are supposed to bury their parents. Uh, right. And so for a lot of, a lot, it's kind of cross across a lot of Nigerian cultures anyway. So, you know, there's a general, generally amongst different Nigerian cultures, you know, it's forbidden for, for a parent to bury their child. Wow. Mm. Mm. Well, this all you resonates know. with me. Um, I interviewed my mother. Um, I did a whole series of interviews with my mother before she died, and it wasn't about a oh, specific wow. experience, but um, yeah. it was this idea of honoring her memory um, and having <laughs> that intimacy to ask about, um, you know, different passages. Um, now, yeah. can you tell me, um, what do you see the role of storytelling today in Nigeria being? Gosh, I think right now, um, storytelling is so vital in terms of preservation because so one of the issues as like Africans in general that we've always had is a lack of documentation of culture, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of our culture now, we're just trying to learn and trying to excavate whatever we can find and whatever is left because don't forget that colonialism came and also kind of erased and destroyed everything that existed. And because we were not in a time where we were writing and documenting about these things, we don't have them. So I think now more than ever, it's so vital that we document what we have. And, those, and, and Africa, Africa in general has very rich oral tradition, right? Yes. Very, very, very rich oral tradition, you know, and that we're not even documented at this point in time. People are just trying to document them now. Some, some people are documented at some point, but just not enough. 
know, um, so we're still dependent on like a lot of hearsay. And I feel like we can't afford to make that mistake again. And so for me, it's so crucial now that we are having intergenerational dialogue on tape. Right. You know, we're having intergenerational conversations on tape. How do we, how do we know where we are now as a culture, even as women, if we don't know what we were coming from, you know, or what was happening at a certain time, right? How do we document, like, paradigm shifts and cultural changes and political changes in history? And, you know, there's things now we're, we're seeing and we're saying, you know, looking at even things around, like, patriarchy. And, you know, some people are like, and now there's conversations saying, you know, it was religion and colonialism that brought in patriarchy because, you know, there were strong women and matriarchal traditions prior to, you know, um, you know, the British coming to Nigeria or prior to slavery and all of these sort of things. But we can't even prove some of it because it's not documented. Right. So it's so crucial now that we're documenting people, their lives, their histories, their personal stories, their traumas, their tra- triumphs, their tragedies. I feel all of it is so, so vital. Because what, like, you know, when 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 you wanna when we wanna um, you know tell our kids like when we wanna have like you know history lessons with our kids like what are we gonna be talking about? Right, exactly. So I I think this is this is such an important time. I mean, this is definitely whether it's written, whether it's video, whether it's archived in photography, images, so images of like even like our clothing. You know, what was what was Lagos like in the seventies? What was it like in the forties? Like all of these sort of things because you always had different, like, you know, people that have come in and erased your culture and sold you something completely different that made it look like, you know, we were like animals, we were just like animalistic people, just, you know, laying down with our breasts or whatever, and all of these sort of things. And, and that's part of, like, selling you, in, selling you your own inferiority, because if you want to oppress someone, you have to erase everything that they are, right? Right, right. And usually just tell them everything that is inferior, so they think that who they are is not good enough. Um, and it's important in terms of our own sort of like self-esteem as people to know to know about our stories in its entirety and in, in completion. So I think I think really right now um, storytelling is so crucial um, for 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 young Africans. I think even using animation, like different sorts of mediums, using art, like art documentation, is so vital. So vital. I can't I can't even overemphasize it. Well, and I'm, you're I'm, you're I'm, part I'm, of that movement. Yeah, I'm I'm even at a point where I'm like, you know, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even have to be some kind of, you know, documentary. It could just be a series of videos, like what you say about like interviewing your mom, and just like having someone's legacy on tape. You know, right? How having someone's life on tape from their own words. Right. You know, we don't for that fifty years. Um, you don't have an archive. You don't have archives of anything or anyone. And no. so everyone's going to keep telling their own version of events again, right? Right. History is always distorted, and that's because not your evidence. Now, um, being a good storyteller also requires being a good listener. Do you have any personal experiences and observations you can share about the act of listening? Um, I think. Um, not listening is very active thing. Oftentimes you think of listening as this passive thing as just like, you know, just listening. So I think it's a very active experience. Um, and when I mean active in the sense that sometimes you have to listen to what the person is not even saying. 
right? Right. So, um, yeah. So it's beyond what they're saying. It's it's literally feeling like getting like feeling their energy, feeling their discomfort, feeling the pain that's coming through, feeling the as the voice is changing the tone. What are they trying to hide? What are they trying to say that they're not saying? What, what do they not know how to say? So I think listening is such is a very active experience. So I think it's about one of those things when you're listening, you need to open all your senses to receive the person who's speaking. Right. Well put. Um, <clears throat> you have observed that um, Nigeria is a conservative society and even secretive when it comes to how Nigerian women deal with pain, shame, mm-hmm. grief, and depression. <laughs> yeah. me. I would say it's not very different in the U.S., although that does seem to be changing. Yeah. Um, but this reality was the impetus for your poem, The Darkness. Can you share some thoughts yeah. on the cost of this cultural reality, how you think it can be changed, as well as tell us a little bit about this poem specifically and why you value the genre of poetry? Um, so I think, I think um, the impact is, you know, is, is, I think the impact is, is, is happening with lots of, like, young women now, like, trying to find themselves, trying questioning themselves. Um, that's that's really the impact of this sort of closeness of how a lot of us, a lot of us have been raised, and there is like an implosion that's happening, you know, where it's like I can't people are like I can't take this anymore, I can't, and I can't deal with this anymore. So like there is some kind of yeah, some sort of implosion that's been happening. I think that's you know, the, the, the effects and the impact of it, um, and we're seeing how trauma kind of embeds itself in your DNA and how it distorts your behavior in some way, without you even realizing it. Um, and people are realizing, like, okay. So now we're, like, in the age of, self, um, of self-care. self and, and we're like, wow, like, we're so messed up. We have a lot of work to do on ourselves. <laughs> right. So that, that's, like, what's happening, <laughs> you know, on one, on one hand. Um, I think, so why, I, I think poetry, for me, initially, I think poetry allows me to hide. So in a way, it serves, it served this purpose, it served this parallel of coming from a place where I wasn't allowed to. I wasn't sure I was allowed to talk about certain things. So I started writing in, in code to it. I like, this thing needs to come out in some way. So I don't know how it's going to come out. And I think poetry does that quite well, where you're hiding in broad daylight, you know. And so it's that thing, again, I feel about listening, right? Like you have to listen with everything. I feel, I feel like poetry requires that of you to listen with all of your senses. So it's not just what you're hearing, but what what is she really saying? Right. So well, I, I think that that is some of one of the uh, the appeal of poetry. I think for me, like you're vulnerable, you're exposed, but some you can still you can still hold on to something. So you can still hide a little bit. I think. With right. Poetry. And can but you talk about this uh, this poem in particular? Yeah. Um. So yeah, the poem in particular, I was thinking it. Thinking about like just you know the idea of like depression and things like anxiety and and how the that's why I said I think I, I think the poem says she wears the darkness like a like a well cut jacket yes you know and how it just becomes a part of a part of you and you luxuriate in it as well 
uh, because that's what happened, right? And I think Nigerians are known for being very resilient and how these things become a part of who we are. Um, we're just, we, we pride on ourselves, we pride ourselves on being strong and being resilient. Nigerians are very strong people. Like, every, every time you talk to Nigerians, person you say, no, we're strong people. We don't, we don't just break like that. You know, we, we don't just break. We, we go through a lot, but we kill the thing. We just keep moving. We keep moving. Our resilience is like a thing we brag about. Um, I think I wanted to express that in how this person wears darkness like it's going to be, it's a part of them, you know, her limbs slip through her piece of teeth. Um, you know, and all of those kinds of things. And I think that's where that, that film came from for me. Mm. And that's going to bring me to my last question, which is, um, what do you see as the relationship between art, personal narrative, and healing? Mm, I think it's, oh gosh, like, I feel like we haven't even explored the depth of that yet. I think we're only just starting you know, we ha- I don't think we've explored the depth of that yet. Um, but for me, there is such a huge, like, as I said, like, literally art is my life. And I know what it's like when I perform poetry in front of people. And, you know, they're going through some kind of, you know, exorcism at, at the same time. And people, like, maybe I'm listening to my album and the, the reactions, they're, the things they're telling me or the emails they're sending me. Um, because there is a healing that is it, forced to happen. Um but I, I don't think that we understand the gravity or the power of art just yet. I think a lot of the time we still think that it's just supposed to entertain us, and we don't know how powerful it is as a tool. Um, yeah, and how how powerful our personal stories are in just letting go of the idea of letting go of shame um, as well. So I think we're just really just starting out when it comes to that. Mm. But for me personally, I think it's one of the most powerful tools how your own story. I always say that your story doesn't just liberate liberate you, but it saves others as well. You know, right? Exactly. Well, it's that idea of yeah. connection. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I always say this thing that we're so much more alike than we we are different, um, and we all, as much as like our situation might be different in the experiences we have, but the feelings and the emotions are all the same, right? So we've all felt lost. We've all felt despair. We've all felt anger. We've all felt loneliness. We've all felt um, um, heartbreak. But it might occur in different ways. It might be a father abandoning you, abandoning you or a lover jilting you at the altar, you know, or something you've worked for all your life slips out of your fingers. So all the situations might be different, but we all feel the same thing at the bottom of it at the end of the day. And so I think that's what art does. It helps us like distill those emotions and say, how can we, you know, let go together? It's just like communal mourning a lot of the time. We can create that space for communal mourning and communal healing as well. Right. Well, that is so true. And um, that is really the intent behind Best Cultural Destinations, which is to explore um our unique differences and celebrate those and at the same yeah. time you know honor our shared human condition and you know i see exactly. culture and art as being the transmission line that enables us to do that um so mm-hmm. this has been fantastic Lana. i've just so enjoyed talking with you okay. and i hope to meet you someday um i hope that our paths will cross because 
there's there's a lot of parallels between our lives and our and our work. Um, and I yeah. I'm, I'm so happy I found you. Um, yes. Thank you so much. I'm very very thoughtful. Oh my gosh! Wow! Like, she really took my time. So that is so awesome. Thank you very much. You are most welcome. 